Thank you very much, uh, Layla, for having me. And thanks, everybody, for, for coming today. If the weather had been as good as it was when I arrived in the UK a few days ago, I, I would not have faulted anyone uh, from, from you know, refraining from coming indoors. Uh, it was lovely. Um, I, uh, it really is special to be back here. This was my apartment just downstairs, but the building didn't even exist. Uh, we were over across from the Odeon um, in this kind of older building. Uh, and it's really uh, amazing to see uh, developments on, on campus. I should also mention, um, you know, when I, when I was a student here, uh, transitional justice, at least at Oxford, was about two people, it's Phil Clark and me. Uh, and it's incredible to see what's developed um, here. I'm actually quite envious being on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, I think much of the most exciting uh, cutting edge work on transitional justice is being done here. Um, here at Oxford and also through the, the London Transitional Justice uh, Research Network. We don't have anything like this uh, in the United States and um, uh, it's, it's just so incredible that what you all are doing here. Um, so uh, I really am uh, really envious. And part of where I saw this in action was a few uh, weeks ago, maybe six weeks ago now, um, some of us were in Atlanta for uh, the ISA annual conference, and there very much is a, it's very clear, an Oxford mafia of transitional <laughs> justice, um, just sort of dominating uh, panel after panel after panel, and um, that's where many of us met in, in person for the first time, and um, so, uh, so it's really terrific to, to be together again, so thank you. Um, I was going to start off my talk by uh, showing a few pictures from my uh, grad school days here. Um, but recognizing that we're sort of in, uh, where many of us here are lawyers, um, I realize they're much too incriminating. Um, so uh, I'll, just, I'll just leave it at, um, I had a wonderful time here and I'm so happy to be back, um, but, but we'll show any documentary evidence of such. Um, so today we're, we're speaking about uh, the, uh, my new book, United States Law and Policy on Transitional Justice. Layla asked me to speak for about 40, 45 minutes uh, about the book. I, I don't think I'll take quite that much time. Um, but, uh, um, but I'll speak probably around 30, 35 minutes. Um, and as Layla mentioned, um, we have some of the books uh, available. Um, if, if you hate my talk, uh, and if you hate the book, I would uh, say that um, it might make for good uh, kindling, um, or, or a doorstop, uh, or a stocking stuffer of some sort. Um, so uh, um, so I, hope, I hope you'll, you'll buy a copy. Um, we have a representative from my publishing house, Oxford University Press. Uh, in the back, Fiona, um, if you want to wave, I'm going to be able to see you. And so she'll be handling um, any and all uh, purchases. So, uh, so again, thanks for, for having me. Today we're going to talk about the policy relevance uh, of this topic, the central research questions that the book explores, the theories that the book um, proposes and also analyzes in order to answer those uh, research questions, the case studies that I delve into uh, in order to uh, apply the theories, uh, the sources I use um, in considering those case studies, and then I'll share with you some of the, uh, the findings, both findings from uh, the case studies that I investigate um, through a deep dive, as well as some preliminary observations um, on some tangential but very important issues as well. So on November 21st, 1945, uh, the, on leave from the U.S. Supreme Court, um, where he serves as Associate Justice, Robert Jackson, who is the U.S. Uh, Chief Prosecutor at Nuremberg uh, declared in his opening statement that what makes this inquest significant is that these prisoners represent sinister influences that will lurk in the world long after their bodies uh, have returned to dust. 
And indeed, in the 20th century, some scholars estimate that between 60 and 120 million people were killed through genocides and other mass atrocities. And indeed, this problem continues uh, in the 21st century. Some, such as Warren Christopher, the former Secretary of State of the United States. By the way, I don't know if you, if you're, if you know, but Secretary Kerry is here today. As well as, by the way, Prince William. Um, <laughs> uh, I was in Maudlin, sorry to take a, a, a departure from the talk, but I was in Maudlin and he was just here uh, inaugurating the, the new beautiful library. Um, it's a very Oxford day to be here with uh, Secretary Kerry and, and Prince William. Um, so Secretary of State Warren Christopher uh, had called um, a, a problem from hell, um, and, and indeed it, it really does continue today. Um, you know, we see uh, the existence and persistence of atrocities all over the world from uh, Syria and Sudan to Burundi and, and Burma, um, and, and really no sign uh, of abatement. And so the questions of transitional justice are, are recurring, they're pressing. This is no mere historical matter or theoretical uh, issue. These are live, uh, live matters. And uh, Leila had mentioned that I'll be going to uh, uh, take leave from academia to serve in the US government soon. I'll be I was, uh, recruited to work on these issues um, in many ways to apply uh, this book. Um, so I'm very excited about that. Um, and, and, you know, and, and just to show you sort of just how recent uh, these issues are too, um, even just six weeks ago, uh, in, in, in kind of a surprising move given how fractured the US Congress is, um, the Congress passed a unanimous resolution uh, declaring and characterizing that some uh, atrocities that ISIS has been committing do constitute genocide. Um, and in a almost uh, unanimous uh, resolution as well, just, just two uh, votes um, against, um, the, uh, the Congress also determined that a war crimes tribunal should be uh, established to deal with atrocities in Syria. Um, and so as we'll, we'll discuss uh, throughout this talk um, in a conversation with Nora, um, you know, these, these issues are, are ongoing. Um, and, uh, and there's really a, a sort of a, a panoply of issues that need to be considered practical and political and, and principled um, about how to, how to respond um, even today, even as we speak. So what is uh, transitional justice? We have um, many ringers in the room uh, for whom uh, this is uh, old hat. Um, but for those who are newer uh, to, the, um, to the field, I would argue that there is both a descriptive and a normative aspect of transitional justice. I, just, I define transitional justice as the process and objectives of societies addressing past or ongoing atrocities and other mass human rights violations through judicial and non-judicial mechanisms. And so the descriptive side is what are sort of all of the options that are at least theoretically possible, um, also you know, have been seriously considered as well as actually implemented. Those, that would be on the descriptive side. And then the normative side is what should be done. Um, and uh, in sort of an unusual way, and perhaps we'll uh, discuss this uh, either in conversation or Q&A, I include a few options here, uh, lethal force and indefinite detention, that, that tend to uh, irk some people in the field. Um, and by, I, I want to be very clear on the normative side, I am in no way um, suggesting or proposing or, or recommending uh, these as, um, as transitional justice options. What I'm merely saying is that contrary to a lot of other literature on this subject, these are considered um, viable alternatives and have at various times in history, um, including today, uh, been considered by the United States government as, um, as real options um, and have been actually implemented. Um, and so as we'll discuss the, 
there really is a, a huge range of, of tools that are available, and it's um, part of the effort of the book, uh, uh, in starting in chapter two, is to um, really flesh out what are all of those options, and I count about 50. Uh, that can be done. I, um, I'll, I'll go through and to, to make it a little bit more digestible in a moment um, what the general options are and then certain variations uh, on them. Um, but there, there are uh, quite a lot and I, want, I do want to impress upon you that there are so many because I think that really gives us an understanding of just how complicated uh, and controversial the, um, uh, this whole decision-making process is and can be. Um, and then, you know, uh, you know, we must uh, recognize that um, certainly by no means are these domestic, uh, domestically focused, exclusively domestically focused decisions. The United States um, operates, of course, within a, a much more global uh, context, and the international landscape really has been shifting, um, uh, you know, over the years. Um, and what's really interesting about that is, you know, in principle, uh, much of the international community has come to the consensus that more should be done. Uh, about atrocities, but we don't seem anywhere at all closer um, to finding in practice any sort of agreement as to what, uh, what will be done. So uh, as, as Layla and I both mentioned, the book focuses on uh, the United States. Um, this is really just sort of a scoping um, decision. Uh, some other books have, have tried to take on multiple states um, simultaneously, but I really wanted to do a deep dive on one state uh, in particular. Um, and the, in terms of the case studies that, that I investigate, which I'll discuss more in a moment, um, I really focused on kind of the seminal periods in transitional justice. And as I see them from my perspective, um, they were the immediate uh, World War II eras and the immediate post-Cold War uh, eras. And um, you know, it was during these times um, that uh, the world had really seen um, atrocities um, for you know of a certain scope and, and even nature that had, were unprecedented in history. Uh, and so the United States, uh, along with allies and even adversaries, which is really interesting, um, you know, was faced with the choices uh, of, of what to do. And so uh, at the time, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and then upon his passing away, uh, uh, Harry uh, Truman, um, were confronted with these questions of, of who should we uh, seek to hold accountable um, how and why, and then you know more logistical questions about you know when, um, through what mechanisms, um, how much um, money to invest, um, and also who's going to be involved. So what other authorities would be involved in in those decisions? And so every single case study, even though again the book focuses on the United States, um, necessarily engages uh, lots of other countries. Um, and I'll argue why some, uh, uh, particularly the Soviet Union then and then Russia later, and the UK um, uh, feature the most prominently. Um, and uh, it's really fascinating, especially in the case of the Soviet Union. I think it really challenges some of our preconceived notions about the role of illiberal states uh, in transitional justice. Um, and I'll get to that uh, in a bit. So after you know the, uh, the, the Second World War, there were these claims or demands of uh, never again. Um, but of course, as we've seen, and even uh, today, um, you know, atrocities are committed again and again. And, and this has really become a kind of, um, while often well-intentioned mantra, um, you know, it really, it really does uh, ring hollow. And part of the problem, at least in the, in the mid uh, to late part of the 20th century, was the Cold War itself. Uh, it really, because of the, the, the emphasis on, on political sovereignty and territorial integrity, um, it privileged 
um, above all else, uh, those uh, those you know very selfish uh, concerns, um, and so unfortunately created sort of a, a perverse carte blanche for um, for states to commit some of the uh, you know more of the the, the most unbelievable um, widespread atrocities that the world had ever seen, and and the Cambodian genocide of which uh, 1.7 million were were killed is um, probably the the best example of that. And then in the immediate post-Cold War, um, we continue uh, to have problems. Even though one of the two superpowers had fallen, um, you know, there was no uh, Pax Americana as many hoped, and even as many declared, uh, including some scholars uh, from here at Oxford. Uh, and um, just like sort of in the, in the Cold War, um, what we continue to see was um, more domestic uh, atrocities and and so in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War, um, perhaps the the best example is the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda. Which, if you can imagine, um, the the rate of the killing was three to five times that of even the Holocaust. It's, it, the the Rwanda genocide, which is the one that I, the atrocity that I focus on and specialize now in for 16 years, um, is is so unbelievably um, both widespread and highly participatory. Um, as to just boggle the mind, um, and, the, and the speed, especially given how low-tech it was, um, is, is really astounding, uh, truly uh, incredible. Um, and just a, a year later, uh, in 95, um, the worst mass atrocity um, to be committed on European soil was perpetrated at Trevenica, um, and that was uh, um, about 8,000 uh, Muslims. And you know, the ICTY, the Yugoslav Tribunal, which we'll, we'll discuss a bit more uh, later, um, you know, continues to deal with um, uh, with those issues. The Rwandan Tribunal has has since concluded its work. So, uh, you know, the end of the the superpower rivalry after the um, the Cold War uh, concluded um, did lead to new opportunities, um, and those were um, were long overdue, uh, and um, and presented um, you know chances for for inter you know for finally some international consensus on on what to do. And so dealing with those uh, questions were first George H.W. Bush um, to be followed by um, Bill Clinton. And one thing I immediately want to point out here, as you may already be, be noticing, is um, in the immediate post-World uh, War II era, we don't have a change in uh, political party. Um, so it, it, it stays uh, democratic. Um, but yet, uh, after the Cold War, we, we shift from Republican to, uh, to Democrat, at least on, in the executive branch. Um, and what I will argue is that, um, contrary to some other scholarship on, on the topic, uh, it turns out not, not really to matter all that much, um, uh, sort of who's in power. What I'm going to argue is that um, there is no principled approach in the United States government to transitional justice. Uh, and so it turns out that um, shifts of uh, a political party, at least in the executive branch, um, haven't at least to date mattered. Um, now, as everybody's favorite topic, uh, Donald Trump, uh, you know, may um, may you know raise, um, you know, it it, it 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 remains to be seen whether what would happen, um, had, you know, if he ascends to the presidency, which, as an aside, I I, I really doubt will occur, um, but uh, but it certainly is um, is possible, and various other Republicans during the primary have been talking about carpet bombing, uh, you know, various. Um, portions of the Middle East, um, and, um, and torturing, Donald Trump even mentioned this, torturing relatives uh, of suspects, and not even just the suspects, um, relatives of suspects. Um, 
And so, um, you know, U.S. policy on uh, on atrocity issues very much could change uh, under under a Trump uh, administration, or if the uh, the convention turns differently um, under the Cruz administration or so on. So, um, so we actually may see um, some real differences. But the point that I want to make, uh, at least today, um, is that historically we haven't really seen much uh, change. So to, to move to you know, sort of what I'm investigating, there, there are two main questions here that I, I spend uh, quite a lot of time uh, you know, thinking about and researching. The first is, why, why did, did the US government choose certain transitional justice options in particular uh, cases? It, a lot of this really is puzzling, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll get into that uh, in a moment when I talk about the cases. And then the second question is, which theoretical framework best explains um, U.S. foreign policy in this issue area. And so when I was a student, including here, um, the, the sort of reigning uh, seminal uh, book on this topic is uh, Gary Bass's Stay the Hand of Vengeance, uh, The Politics of War Crimes Tribunals. And in that book, um, uh, he proposes, Professor Bass, who teaches at Princeton, proposes a theory um, called legalism. Um, legalism as a, as a phrase or a word um, has previously been used in other contexts, so he repurposes uh, legalism and applies it to this issue area of transitional justice uh, um, to try to propose a theory for how liberal states uh, address um, transitional justice issues. So I come up with a, a competing theory, which I call prudentialism, um, and let me uh, sort of put this side by side for you so we can dig into their differences. So legalism is a derivative of liberalism, and prudentialism is a derivative of realism. And basically what legalism says is that liberal states are driven by normative beliefs in this issue area. Um, and so his, his claim, uh, and legalism's claim, um, is that uh, liberal states are committed to the principled idea that um, justice should be pursued uh, through the rule of law and that uh, vanquished foes who have committed atrocities should be, should be pursued through the rule of law. Um, so, so as we can tell, that is, um, uh, that is, that is an empirical claim that, that can be tested. We can historically uh, test that claim by analyzing the case studies. Um, and indeed, I, I, to be as fair as possible to Professor Bass, I take him on his own case studies while also adding uh, a few as well. So um, in contrast to the idea that normative beliefs are exclusively or, or, um, or dominating um, liberal states' uh, foreign policy making on transitional justice, I argue that um, quite the opposite. Uh, liberal states, and actually all states, um, are driven by a case-specific balancing of principles, politics, and uh, pragmatics. And so um, what I further argue is that where intention Principles do not dominate. Politics and pragmatics will subsume uh, and dominate over, will trump, if you will, uh, principles. Um, and so we can see a, a, you know, a, a, an extremely important uh, contrast between the two theories. Again, on the one hand, legalism is suggesting that principles, normative beliefs, are driving decision making. I argue that that is not at all the case. Um, one of the advantages, which I fully concede, of legalism is it's, it's parsimonious. It's, it's quite simple and therefore um, you know, quite uh, attractive. International relations, for those who uh, are also students of the field here, um, is always searching for parsimonious theories. 
Um, the only one that I think has sort of been found is pretty much been debunked by now, which was the, the idea that states don't go to, liberal states don't, and democratic states don't go to war against each other. Um, the democratic peace theory, um, and in various ways that's, uh, that's been debunked, but um, still uh, political scientists strive for parsimonious theories. Um, and that is a, um, an advantage of, uh, of legalism. But just because something is parsimonious, of course, does not mean that it's right. Simple does not mean accurate. Uh, and so I argue that though prudentialism is much more complicated, much more complex, um, uh, it is also more uh, accurate. One of the um, other big differences between legalism and prudentialism is whether they, concern, they consider security interests. So again, in, in thinking about principles and focusing on principles and normative beliefs, um, legalism does not consider the security interests of states um, because, of course, that would be a political or pragmatic consideration. And so I, on the, on the other hand, do very much focus on security interests. Um, and your guts, my gut, um, you know, might tell you that um, that, that makes sense. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's no surprise to anyone that the United States government and other governments are driven in large part, often, by security interests. Um, and what I'll, what I'll do and what I do in the, in the book and we'll do today is tease out what the security interests are. Um, and I'll, I'm gonna identify three for you that I argue um, uh, are central to driving US policy making in this, in this area. And so, you know, wouldn't it be lovely uh, if it were true that the U.S. government were um, were driven by principle, uh, and so and so in that in that way, legalism is is a huge compliment, right, to to the U.S. government. Um, my my you know theory of prudentialism is critical. Uh, it it says that you know it's uh, these are unprincipled, inconsistent uh, decisions, um, and that's another uh, difference of of the two theories. So let me just further outline um, some differences. Legalism uh, holds forth a few empirical claims to which prudentialism responds. And one of the empirical claims is only liberal states, only liberal states, and this is really important to keep in mind as we go through the case studies, only liberal states support bona fide war crimes tribunals. Um, and now many, you know, some of you may even immediately take issue with that uh, claim and, and we'll, talk, we'll talk more why that, why that would be the, the case. Um, and I, on the other hand, argue that any state liberal or illiberal, could in fact support, and has in fact supported uh, modified war crimes tribunals. And so driving these empirical claims are different causal logics, passed uh, um, through legalism claims that um, it's because leaders of liberal states um, have a different view than leaders of illiberal states. And that view uh, is that it's correct and necessary for suspected atrocity perpetrators to be um, prosecuted, to be put on trial. Uh, and, you know, again, quite opposite, um, I argue there is no such uh, principle of commitment to, um, to such a sort of rule of law outcome. And so, as we've been discussing, uh, legalism suggests far more consistency than prudentialism does. The case studies, uh, there are six uh, in the book. Um, I'm going to talk today about four of them, although I'd be happy to uh, discuss with you uh, the two others. Um, I sort of um, uh, categorize them as kind of major case studies and, and minor case studies. And one thing I'll immediately point out is that um, two of these case studies are pretty unusual for transitional justice. Um, the, and these are the uh, third and fourth on the list. The 
um, the terrorist attack against Panel Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland. Uh, and the second is the, the first Gulf War, uh, the, the actions that prompted the first Gulf War, and those are um, Saddam Hussein's invasion of uh, Kuwait in 1991. And the reason why I include them, uh, and I fully concede that these are unusual cases, um, is because in conducting the research on the other cases, the ones that would follow Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia Balkans, um, I discovered uh, that um, decision making about Pan and Flight 103 and the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in the early 90s um, was very much tied in the mind of US policymakers um, to what would later be done uh, in Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia. Um, Pan and Flight 103, many of the uh, victims were uh, UK and US nationals. Um, in both of those two countries, um, our two countries, um, were very much focused on trying to um, exert jurisdiction uh, over the, the crime. That's a very different outcome than pushing to an international tribunal um, or some other multilateral uh, transitional justice institution um, the, the mechanisms that would later be uh, um, selected and supported and, and implemented uh, for Rwanda and for the former Yugoslavia. And I would argue that um, it's, it's no coincidence that it was um, in large part or exclusive part um, because who the victims were. Um, and similarly, in Iraq, there were other sort of pragmatic and political decisions that don't relate to the nationality of the uh, victims um, that play into uh, the decisions that were taken that were um, very distinct uh, from the case of uh, former Yugoslavia and Rwanda. Um, reportedly, at one point, uh, George W. H. W. Bush, so George Bush Sr., offered amnesty and exile to Saddam Hussein uh, at the time, which uh, Saddam Hussein rejected. Um, but it's quite something to um, to offer amnesty uh, for the atrocities that were committed against uh, the Kurds. Um, and, uh, and again, it's, it's, it's so different than some other approaches that the US government was taking just within a few years in the case of Rwanda and Korea's life. So uh, let me tell you a little bit about the sources uh, that I used. It took a number of years to collect these. Uh, and so by the way, for those who um, uh, are scholars in the room, I would urge you that if you are doing research on the US government, to submit FOIA requests early and often. Um, uh, at one point, um, given my, because of my FOIA requests, I got a letter from someone I'd never met before uh, in my life, another researcher. And he told me that my um, FOIA applications were in the top 10 longest running FOIA applications at the time, you know, in uh, being considered by the State Department. They were unwilling uh, to, to release the documents, which they eventually did uh, to me. And to, um, to share uh, that work with, uh, with the world, I've uh, published all of the documents uh, on the companion website to the book. It's www.transitionaljustice-book.com. Uh, and part of the reason is I didn't use all of the data. Some of it, um, you know, you, you read cables and some is just not related to what you're researching. Some is duplicative, some of it is um, uh, just, you know, really off topic. And so my hope is that other scholars and journalists will benefit uh, from these documents that took so, so long uh, to obtain. And uh, actually just earlier this afternoon, I was having lunch with an old mentor of mine from the department, Calypso Nicolaitis. Uh, and we saw, uh, we ran into Adam Roberts, and Adam had supported, he had been very helpful in 
uh, writing cover letters um, to the State Department to sort of, you know, uh, legitimize the uh, the requests. And so I would further argue that um, involving your supervisors uh, in this um, in this work can be uh, helpful. Um, although I guess the fact that it was still one of the top ten longest running I don't know, maybe it wasn't maybe it wasn't all that helpful. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't. Anyway, so there are about 200 um, documents that uh, were previously classified, um, and that is a, a, a huge amount of the primary uh, source research. I also focus a lot on elite interviewing. And as you'll see uh, here, the current and uh, a former uh, national security advisor uh, were among my um, sources. Um, and also, uh, most of the decision makers um, at the time, from the early 90s, on what to do about uh, Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia. For obvious uh, biological reasons, I couldn't interview um, folks from, uh, from World War II. Um, and so there, there is uh, an, sort of an imbalance, uh, which I acknowledge, on elite interviewing in the later uh, case studies. Um, there are also other primary sources that I, um, that I employ, um, and those are um, you know, publicly available uh, press releases and, and reports from. Uh, the U.S. government, the United Nations, other uh, other governments uh, as well. And so the secondary sources I draw on, it's, it's a um, necessarily interdisciplinary uh, project, um, are, are law, political science, history, human rights, and of course, transitional justice itself. So I mentioned earlier, um, just, you know, there's a, there's a, um, the, an immense panoply of, of options that can be considered. And part of what I try to contribute uh, in the book is to, um, to offer a way of, of understanding um, those options. Uh, and so here is kind of a high level um, uh, look at, at what are at least theoretical uh, transitional justice options, the full range. Um, and these focus on perpetrators. There are also, of course, other options within transitional justice that focus on uh, victims. Um, that that wasn't that isn't my focus in this particular book, um, and so these are um, our prosecute our, our perpetrator focus or suspect uh, focused um, options. So the first, of course, is um, whether to do something or nothing, and I would also refer to do nothing as an implicit or de facto unconditional amnesty. Um, I'd further argue that um, in the modern day, with 24/7 media and global intelligence. Um, it's pretty uh, uh, indefensible to argue that we're unaware of, um, of mass atrocities. Um, we know today that atrocities are being committed in Syria, Burundi, Burma, elsewhere. And, um, and so do nothing um, increasingly becomes, and that's why I, I try to label it with this implicit or de facto unconditional amnesty, that is actually a choice. Um, it might be more plausibly argued um, in the past that maybe um, certain states didn't do anything about uh, mass or certain mass atrocities because they were simply unaware. Um, I think that that's um, an implausible argument to defend in the modern day. Um, and so, um, so that's why I would argue that this is an implicit uh, unconditional amnesty. Um, so if the decision is made to do something, then what? Um, I, I point out here about you know, six general transitional justice options, and those are illustration, which means purging from government, um, perhaps most notoriously uh, uh, recently implemented in the case of Iraq uh, after the 03 uh, invasion, 
Um, the U.S. government uh, imposed a policy that it termed de-bathification. Um, and the problem, of course, uh, with de-bathification was that um, it presumed guilt by political association. Anybody who was a member of the Ba'ath Party was uh, assumed to be a loyalist. Um, and the problem, of course, with that perspective is that um, it neglects the, um, the, the reality that the Ba'ath Party was sort of um, the dominant, you know, one might argue, the only uh, show in town. If you wanted a job, if you wanted to be able to provide for your family, um, you very likely have to work for the Ba'ath Party. And so after purging uh, from government um, uh, and um, you know, critical infrastructure positions, um, thousands and thousands uh, of Iraqis, um, the US government realized that they had inadvertently created a security vacuum. Um, and because of the violence of the war, um, as so much of the infrastructure had been uh, destroyed uh, in Iraq, um, uh, you know, things weren't getting fixed, things weren't, uh, in, you know, improving, and now you've got a bunch of uh, unemployed, um, uh, resentful uh, individuals um, who very much could be candidates for recruitment uh, against uh, uh, the United States. Um, and so the United States government decided to reverse course um, in a policy that became known as either de-debathification or rebathification. Uh, and um, uh, as an acknowledgement of illustration, uh, really is incredibly problematic, both theoretically <coughs> and, and practically. So that's illustration. Um, and there have been lots of other uh, illustrations throughout uh, history as well. Um, uh, after the, the Second World War, Eastern Europe um, uh, faced a lot of uh, illustrations. Um, amnesty um, is a second general transitional justice option. I further subdivide it into explicit unconditional amnesty and conditional amnesty. I've already argued that implicit unconditional amnesty is another way of referring in the modern day to do nothing. But explicit unconditional amnesty would be a proactive, um, perhaps legal, uh, approach to um, implementing amnesty. And this has been done um, uh, most popularly in Latin America, that actual laws have been passed um, to, uh, uh, to impose amnesty over um, a certain time period, um, set of crimes, and individuals. Uh, and that would be explicit unconditional amnesty. Conditional amnesty. Uh, I would argue um, includes um, mechanisms like truth and reconciliation commissions or, or a subset of them. Basically, a conditional amnesty is a deal um, whereby uh, if the suspect offers truthful testimony about what they've done, in exchange they will be given amnesty. So, you know, quite unlike unconditional amnesty, which is unrelated to any amount of uh, accuracy or veracity or volume of, of uh, testimony you might offer, um, uh, conditional amnesty very much is predicated on the participation, the, the truthful, genuine participation of, of suspects. Uh, and so for example, the South African TRC, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, is an example of uh, what I would argue is conditional amnesty. Um, we also have exile, so sending people, uh, removing them from the scene of, of atrocities and sending them uh, elsewhere. Um, furthermore, a, a fourth general option, option would be indefinite detention, most notoriously and recently implemented, for example, in Guantanamo Bay, um, but also elsewhere uh, in, in history. 
lethal force in, in here, uh, as I mentioned in the beginning of my remarks, um, I fully concede this is uh, controversial, but I'm prepared to defend it, um, why I put this on the list. Um, I subdivide lethal force into uh, illegitimate um, lethal force, which is uh, assassination, and legitimate uh, military uh, targeting. And then finally, uh, prosecution as the um, often uh, uh, most popular and certainly um, usually the, the transitional justice option with the most variation. Um, and so to, con to you know, um, belabor the point of just how many options and sub-options there are, let me dive further into prosecution. So you can either prosecute through or outside the United Nations. If you prosecute outside the United Nations, um, after, of course, the United Nations is built, um, you could either do so unilaterally or, um, or multilaterally. So multilateral prosecution through the United Nations um, can be done in, in various ways. It could be done either through the uh, Security Council's Chapter 7 or Chapter 6 uh, powers. It can be done through the General Assembly. Uh, it can be done through a multilateral treaty, or as has been proposed, you could create a criminal court component uh, of the United Nations itself. And then if uh, through uh, the Security Council, if through Chapter 7, um, there are three further options. Um, and I want to describe them theoretically because um, they are implemented uh, later, and all three are seriously considered, and two are actually implemented. So the first is um, ICT separate, what I would argue is the, an international, a separate international uh, criminal tribunal. Um, and that is um, you know, in a, a tribunal that the Security Council would create that is unrelated to any other uh, tribunal. And when the Yugoslav tribunal is built, um, is established in 93, that's the form it takes, uh, is ICT separate. Actually, mostly just, I mean, obviously by default, there had never ever, you know, there had never been uh, an, a, uh, another or existing uh, tribunal by that date uh, through the Security Council, and so it becomes ICT separate. When it comes time for the, um, the Security Council to consider options for the responding to the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda, um, these two, um, the second and third options are seriously considered. And so one option is um, what I would call ICT expanded, um, expanding an international criminal tribunal, and, um, and this was, was considered. Uh, expand the jurisdiction of the Yugoslav tribunal to include jurisdiction over, mandate over uh, the genocide in Rwanda. Um, and part of the counter argument uh, um, for this was that some worried that this could eventually turn into a permanent international criminal court, but one that was tied to the Security Council. And so very different than what was actually done uh, in practice where uh, in 1998, um, when the ICC was, um, when the decision about how to design the ICC had finally been achieved, it was decided not to, um, uh, to tie it to the uh, Security Council. There are still some relationships through deferrals and referrals, um, but, um, but very different than being a sub-body of the Security Council. And then the third option under this um, uh, uh, mechanism of, of the Security Council would be, some, would be a separate tribunal um, that had some ties to an existing tribunal. And that is indeed what the Rwanda Tribunal became and what the Yugoslav Tribunal evolved into. Um, they initially shared a, uh, an appeals chamber, um, and they initially also shared a chief prosecutor, 
um, although later the chief prosecutor for the two tribunals would be separated. And so if, um, if, if a multilateral transitional justice option is pursued outside the United Nations, so we just talked about inside the United Nations, you could do throw, so in various configurations, either as a military court or as a civilian court, um, either bilateral or more broadly multilateral, with or without the successor regime, um, through a treaty or an executive agreement. So an executive agreement, um, examples of those are um, the Nuremberg and Tokyo tribunals. Um, as, a, as a way of um, getting around the, uh, the US Congress, which would have to ratify a treaty um, uh, Truman uh, and his counterparts in other uh, countries decided to set up those tribunals uh, through executive agreements, which are only done through uh, heads of state. And then the duration uh, of, of these um, different tribunals could be either permanent or ad hoc. And then if unilateral, uh, outside the United Nations, again, it could be either a civilian or a military tribunal, um, with the uh, successor state or without, um, as a mechanism through the, the existing domestic jurisdiction or, or court system, or as a special tribunal, and then again, either permanent or ad hoc. Okay, so that's, that's mostly the theory um, and, the, and the options, um, and so let's dive into the case study. Uh, I mentioned in the beginning of the talk uh, Nazi Germany, um, and the most famous transitional justice option uh, in the institution here that was implemented was, of course, the Nuremberg Tribunal. And that, so that we understand, is prosecution through an ad hoc international military tribunal established through an executive agreement. But if I, by no means, uh, and this is where I think uh, my, my work really differs and, and diverges from a lot of other scholars on the, on the topic, I really want to focus on um, what are the other transitional justice options that were implemented either sequentially or simultaneously alongside uh, the most famous uh, uh, institutions. And um, what, what's further um, important about these other options, um, and as I'll argue, they exist in um, almost all of the other case studies as well, is that they account for, by far, um, uh, most um, of, the, of the suspects. Um, the, you know, the Nuremberg Tribunal, the Tokyo Tribunal, the Rwanda Tribunal, the Yugoslav Tribunal, have only dealt with a few dozen uh, cases um, in, in each of those tribunals, whereas thousands upon thousands of other suspects have been addressed through alternative, um, again, simultaneous or sequential uh, options. So in the case of uh, Nazi Germany, um, in addition to participating in the multilateral institution of Nuremberg, the United States, through its uh, zone of occupation, um, uh, prosecuted over a thousand Germans unilaterally. The other victorious quadripartite uh, powers also prosecuted in their zones of occupation. Uh, the Soviets, for example, prosecuting over 10,000, um, often through through what might we might argue are, are really show trials, not really. Um, uh, um, you know, legitimate, genuine due process uh, honoring uh, trials. Um, but here's where, where it really, I think, gets interesting, and this is where I want to emphasize um, the, the evidence that I use to undermine legalism and bolster or, um, or demonstrate how prudentialism is actually the, the more accurate um, uh, theory to, through which to understand policymaking on this topic. And, and so amnesty, conditional amnesty, um, was, was implemented in the case of, of Nazi Germany. And, and 
you know, a staggering uh, amount. And let me tell you a, a few uh, of those cases. So through Operation Paperclip, uh, which was a, a joint uh, military and intelligence operation, over a thousand uh, scientists are, are um, given what, it, what effectively would be called, um, what I would call conditional amnesty, so deals. Um, and, and two of the, the most famous are Dr. Werner von Braun and Klaus Barbie. Uh, Ver Werner von Braun was the designer of the V2 rocket, um, which uh, the Nazis rained upon London, uh, and, um, uh, and so was used during uh, World War II. Um, he allegedly used slave labor from concentration camps um, to, um, uh, to work on the science um, and the engineering behind the, uh, the rockets. The United States um, would later uh, recruit uh, Werner von Braun to what would become uh, the father of American rocketry. Um, a direct line can be traced from uh, Werner von Braun's work to uh, putting the first man on the moon. Um, and the U.S. government was certainly aware uh, of um, the allegations in his past um, of committing atrocities. The other uh, individual that I'm highlighting here is Klaus Barbie, uh, nicknamed the, uh, butcher, the Butcher of Neil. Uh, he was um, responsible for the deaths of thousands of Jewish uh, adults and children um, by um, shipping them off to concentration and death camps. He was recruited also by the U.S. government for his counterintelligence uh, capabilities and skills. Um, in the coming Cold War, the United States um, wanted assets um, and prioritized uh, the prospect of concerned security interests, here we're getting into the security interests, um, of, uh, of the country over the retrospective sort of accountability uh, and uh, criminal responsibility concerns. And so, um, so as we're, we're talking, the, the U.S. was, um, was prioritizing uh, advantages, competitive advantages in rocket science, uh, weapons development, and uh, counterintelligence in this case. Um, and then just to, to um, complete the, the, um, the picture of all the transitional justice options, illustration was also used uh, in uh, the case of Nazi Germany. So to uh, visualize um, the cases, you can see in shading here um, that there were multiple uh, options uh, used sequentially and simultaneously. And then this uh, visual um, shading um, shows you uh, the configurations that were used for both the multilateral and the unilateral prosecutions that the U.S. pursued. That brings us to uh, Imperial Japan. And again, the most famous uh, of the transitional justice options here is the, the tribunal, the sister tribunal to Nuremberg, very much um, based on the statute, uh, the Nuremberg Charter. Um, and, uh, and similarly, an international and ad hoc international military tribunal created through an executive agreement. But just as in the case of Nazi Germany, um, that by no means was the only uh, transitional justice option that was implemented either sequentially or simultaneously. Um, again, we had unilateral prosecutions um, of even more uh, in, in the case of the Japanese. Um, and, and one option that was pursued that wasn't uh, so far as I can determine, pursued in the case of Nazi Germany, is unconditional, explicit, unconditional uh, amnesty. And that was um, given to, uh, granted to Emperor Hirohito, um, whom uh, many scholars uh, you know, would credit with um, decision-making over some of the atrocities that the Japanese had committed. But uh, the US, again, was looking prospectively uh, at the incipient Cold War. 
and so determined that it was more important to keep Japan as a bulwark against the Soviet Union than to uh, fully address the crimes that it committed just recently. Uh, and so the U.S. was, um, was concerned about um, you know, a rebellion by the Japanese who very much consider uh, Emperor Hirohito as, as even sort of a godlike uh, figure. They were also, the U.S. was also concerned about succession struggles um, and, um, and uh, perhaps most importantly, wanted to keep uh, Hirohito as an ally against uh, the, the budding rivalry uh, with uh, the Soviet Union. Um, I'm, I'm going to take a, a, a moment to focus on this slide uh, because um, this is some of the most shocking research um, that, that I did in the course of, of the book. And, and in many ways, it's um, the most under-researched and, and surprisingly so, I think. Um, so there were some uh, Im implicit unconditional amnesties granted to some of the most egregious uh, of the war criminals for a lot of the same reasons as, as Hirohito. But the truly interesting part, uh, I think, um, are the conditional amnesties offered to scientists and uh, other officials involved in human experimentation. And so over 3,000 individuals, Japanese uh, officials and scientists involved in human experimentation of the most ghastly sort. So these are extreme, both low and high pressure testing, extreme, both low and high temperature testing, uh, deliberate um, infection of uh, disease, gangrene, uh, strep, uh, any number of other uh, diseases that one can imagine. Uh, these individuals were, were uh, later granted amnesty by the United States government. Um, and the reason uh, was because uh, the U.S. determined that their, um, their science, their uh, research on biological and chemical weapons was, um, was extremely sophisticated. Um, now, never mind, of course, uh, that this was conducted on human guinea pigs, including, by the way, allied POWs, and some suspect American POWs. So the U.S. government gave conditional amnesty, cut deals, money, entertainment, um, to thousands of individuals involved in these uh, experiments. As just one measure of, and this I think really, really, I think, sh you know, emphasizes the point, as just one measure of um, how, uh, how far uh, the Japanese went. Um, at one point, uh, the Nazi Charge d'Affaires, uh, who was based in China, complained complained, the Nazi, the head Nazi in the, in the region, complained back to headquarters in Germany um, about uh, their, uh, their ally getting a little out of hand here. Uh, so that, that, at least for me, um, really, really shows um, just how far things went. And so the, the U.S. gave uh, amnesty in exchange for uh, the data. Um, and it's interesting, as, as President Obama uh, has just announced a, 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 an upcoming trip to Hiroshima, and the Secretary Kerry, who's on campus today, has recently uh, returned from Japan. Uh, I wrote a, a sort of a related piece to the book, um, arguing that um, it is long overdue that the United States apologize for its cover-up, and that it release the uh, documents related to the deals that it struck and the data that it obtained, and that we finally uh, find some sort of uh, truth and closure uh, about about what happened. Um, it is it is a uh, an, an incredible shame on the um, on the, the U.S. Uh, and Japanese um, government. Uh, 
Uh, Shiro Ishii, his picture uh, is here, was the, uh, the leader of Unit 731, which is probably the most notorious of the human experimentation groups. Um, that brings us to uh, illustration, and like in, in Nazi Germany, that was also uh, imposed. Uh, so visual representation here, we see even more options that were implemented, in part because of the explicit unconditional amnesty. Uh, and then these are the uh, different configurations that the prosecutions, both multilateral and unilateral, took. Uh, brings us to the Balkans, uh, my second to last case study I'll talk to you about uh, today. Um, the most famous, of course, um, option that was implemented is the Yugoslav Tribunal. But again, uh, by far, by no means the only uh, option. Reportedly, uh, U.S. Ambassador Richard Holbrook uh, offered uh, amnesty, a conditional amnesty, to Radovan Karadzic if he left office. Now, uh, Ambassador Holbrook denied this uh, until his, his death, um, but three other State Department officials have gone on record uh, with the New York Times um, uh, attesting to, to this, this offer. Um, and as, uh, as many of you will know, of course, uh, Karadzic uh, was later, was indicted, prosecuted, and recently convicted uh, by the, the Yugoslav Tribunal. I would also argue there was an unconditional amnesty um, or inaction imposed. Um, there were NATO troops and US troops in the Balkans um, uh, after and, and while more atrocities were being committed. And there was a deliberate policy um, of what some have called benign neglect of deciding not to um, execute on arrest warrants. So just let people who had already been indicted for uh, mass atrocities continue in office um, and in other, uh, other professions in, in, in society. And so here we see fewer uh, um, shaded transitional justice options and the, um, the shading of the, uh, that, that demonstrates how the ICTY, the Yugoslav Tribunal was correct, was, um, erected. So as I mentioned, at first it was totally separate, it was the only, and then it evolved into a tied tribunal when the ISTR, the Rwanda tribunal was created. Final and uh, fastest case study. Um, and here, here things get a little interesting. Um, I do not differ with uh, legalism, with uh, Bass's uh, theory of legalism on this case study. Um, there was only one type of transitional, general type of transitional justice option implemented excuse me, and that was uh, prosecution. Um, but I would argue that we, we arrive at that conclusion, uh, our explanations are different. Um, Bass, through legalism, argues, again, through this principle of commitment to the rule of law. I would argue that um, the main reason that the Rwanda Tribunal was created was uh, because of path dependency and analogical reasoning uh, rising out of um, the recent and still existing Yugoslav Tribunal. Um, and that had it not been for the Yugoslav Tribunal, um, there may never have been uh, a Rwanda Tribunal. And so we have the, uh, a much more simplified um, diagram here of the shading and the tide. And so just to briefly summarize um, the findings from the book, um, surprise, surprise, I find that my theory is correct. Uh, that um, it is politics, pragmatics, and normative beliefs, I know this is shocking, uh, that are driving US foreign policy in this issue area of transitional justice. Um, and some of the, the, the kind of benefits that the US government identifies and seizes upon uh, through multilateralism um, are that um, it, it provides more resources, uh, credibility and legitimacy, 
um, access to suspects, witnesses, and evidence. Often after an atrocity, um, witnesses and perpetrators um, scatter, and so only by working with uh, partners uh, can one sort of fully participate in, in um, bringing an atrocity to account. Um, and the approval and participation of adversaries, allies, uh, and other actors. So um, this is a separate uh, issue from you know, the politics, pragmatics, and all those beliefs. These are um, practical and political considerations that the US government um, is weighing when deciding which among the options to pursue. Um, as I was just uh, mentioning in the case of Rwanda, it turns out path dependency um, is central to uh, policy making in this uh, issue area, and it, it's in two ways. One is um, in having available models. So the Nuremberg Tribunal, because of path dependency, um, is the model for the Tokyo Tribunal. And similarly, the Yugoslav Tribunal becomes the model for the Rwanda Tribunal. Um, and, but also the other way in which path dependency features very prominently uh, in these narratives is um, through the forms of decision making. So the, the, um, the group, the international group of actors involved in dealing with the atrocity then become the, the group that deals with um, the transitional justice that follows. And so from World War II, those were the alliances, um, uh, the allies, and then uh, after, uh, after the Cold War, it becomes the Security Council. Um, whether or not suspects are, in, are already in custody turns out to be a hugely important pragmatic factor driving transitional justice. Um, and the relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union and then the Russia also factors um, a huge amount into uh, these narratives. Um, Bassett argued that principle in the case of, of a commitment to the rule of law drives uh, transitional justice policy making for, for liberal states. I would argue that there are normative beliefs, but there are different ones and subtly but, but importantly different. One is that at least some perpetrators should be prosecuted. This, this is common to all of the cases. Um, but that's not necessarily legalistic. And as it relates to the second um, uh, normative belief that I see that perpetrators should suffer capital punishment, if we put those two together that um, at least some perpetrators should be, should be punished and perhaps through death, um, we see that that doesn't necessarily inform prosecution. It also could inform uh, drone strikes lethal and other mechanisms of lethal force. Um, and then finally, the, another normative belief that I, that I do see in the cases um, are that where, where they are in tension, and I think, in, I'm, I'm sure some of you would, would agree that in the transitional justice uh, field, it is often overblown that peace and justice are in, are in tension, but where they are, or where they're perceived to be, often the United States government prioritizes peace over justice. Three of the four case studies have simultaneous and sequential transitional justice options, so multiple uh, at the same time. And then so, so let me tease out the security interests and, and just to summarize them. Um, they are that the US is um, seeking to prevent further conflict, that's number one. Protect American soldiers, that's number two. And bolster US scientific and counterintelligence capabilities. And so where these um, security interests arise in the cases, um, they trump principle. And so as part of the explanation for why Bass and I do not differ on the outcome of Rwanda, it is because there were no <coughs> security interests in that case. And so again, I, I conclude that uh, credentialism is a, a more robust and, and stronger theory than uh, legalism. And finally, um, there are problems with um, the empirical claims that I've mentioned before of uh, legalism. Uh, Bass claims of legalism that liberal states tend to be legalist. I find that um, where, and they often do not, 
um, do anything about atrocities, and we see that even today. Um, states, liberal states tend not to be legalist. Um, and you know, we've already talked about various amnesties and lustrations and alluded to lethal force and indefinite detentions, um, which are not legalistic. Um, he you know, mentions this causal logic of the principal commitment to the rule of law. I do not find um, any sort of, of commitment. Um, final slide. Uh, one of his um, other um, major empirical claims is that only liberal states uh, with their legalistic beliefs support bona fide uh, war crimes tribunals. But as I found, that's not the case. In fact, in fact, illiberal states have been just as, if not more important, um, to the decision about supporting and implementing bona fide war crimes tribunals, as have liberal states. Um, and just one, one or two examples. In the case of Nuremberg, it was actually Stalin. It was Stalin who convinced and persuaded uh, Churchill and FDR to pursue prosecutions. And at least initially, the Anglo-American allies wanted to execute the senior leadership or exile them. It took Stalin to persuade them that no, we should not do that. Um, and that's, that's really a major finding. Bass acknowledges that, but characterizes it, it as an, un, an uncomfortable exception to his theory. But I would argue that it's actually a, a case study that undermines it rather than provides any sort of exception. And then later and more recently, some of the most illiberal states in the world have signed on to the Rome Statute, uh, creating the International Criminal Court. Um, and then uh, a few uh, years earlier, um, certain uh, illiberal states were essential to the creation of both the Yugoslav and Rwanda tribunals, either because they were permanent members of, uh, of the Security Council voting for, or at least not against, uh, those tribunals, or because they held non-permanent rotating seats in the case of Nigeria, Oman, and Djibouti. Um, so thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks. Well, thank you very much, Zach, for, the, um, for your comments, and thank you for inviting me to discuss the book. Um, actually, basically, my main comment is I highly recommend uh, reading the book. Um, I will basically spend the next 10 minutes telling you why I think that's the case. Um, so actually, at first sight, and, and you say that the distinction between the major and the minor case studies, so at first sight, the book focuses basically on the um, four out of five of the main international criminal uh, tribunals, known back to ICTY, ICTUR. But actually, I think that this book goes much more beyond that focus, and I think that's also one of the very interesting contributions that the book is making. Um, on the one hand, um, I actually found the, the discussion of um, the Lockerbie bombings and the, um, uh, the uh, Iraqi um, cases, and how they intersected within the US government in the t uh, decision making mm -hmm. on uh, the ICTY, and that was, was very fascinating. And secondly also, and I think that's, that's also very relevant, and we'll get back to this later in the comments, the question how far actually the book goes beyond the, the kind of traditional judicial justice mechanisms. Um, so we have on the one hand, I think, very interesting empirical uh, contributions here, in terms of especially the, the, doc the documents that you found, um, some of them are absolutely fascinating. Um, on the other hand, I think this broader focus, uh, which is also a very interesting contribution, so I think generally for anyone who's interested in US foreign policy and traditional justice, this is probably going to be one of the major contributions and uh, a must-go and a must-read. Um, and also I find very interesting that it goes, and, and really refreshing really, that it goes beyond this typical um, American versus the ICC debate that really by this point um, doesn't provide any more new insight, I think. 
Um, but then I think also for those who are interested to kind of in a broader um, focus on transfer justice and beyond American foreign policy, um, I think there are basically three reasons why I think it's interesting. So first, um, the, the because of the empirical insights that are they're really important, I think, for anyone who's interested in the field and in kind of thinking about political decision-making that leads to these mechanisms. Um, so, for example, the role um, of the U.S. and U.S. decision-making and its awareness of uh, the Rwandan genocide, actually, you have some very, very interesting um, kind of now newly disclosed information on that and how far uh, the U.S. was aware of the genocide, to which extent, um, but also kind of why um, it decided to uh, support the establishment of the ICTR and, and how far guilt, for example, played a role there. Mm -hmm. And I, I can kind of see why the FOIA um, disclosures took quite a bit of time mm -hmm. there. <laughs> so so that's, that's very interesting. The other um, thing is also the, the theoretical contribution. I think it will be very interesting to see in how far that can be transferred mm -hmm. in different contexts to other states. And uh, finally, um, I think for anyone who's engaged in interdisciplinary work, I think that's also, it's, it's a very good example of how to address different audiences. Um, so of course, uh, for anyone who does that, that's quite it's a bit of a challenge. Um, but we can see in the, in the book um, both like a broader traditional justice audience, but also, for example, there are some very interesting insights on uh, thinking about the concept of, pruden uh, of prudence in mm -hmm. for international relations research. I think that um, is also a very good example. And actually, I also think that's one of the main achievements of the book, that you're you're really um, addressing a broader audience beyond the academic circles. So it's extremely um, clearly written um, and it very clearly lays out what the um, policy relevance of the, the book and of the findings are. I think that's it's a, it's a big achievement. So basically, um, as you already heard, in terms of the theoretical uh, contribution, this um, distinction between prudentialism and uh, legalism, and basically, prudentialism really is like weighing cost and benefits in terms of IR research is rationalism at the core, right? Mm -hmm. But um, thinking about um, cost and benefits here in terms of uh, normative, pragmatist, and, and political considerations, and legalism focusing on normative beliefs, rule of law, and then courts. And I think that's an interesting point here because you basically go, and as I said, this broader focus necessarily forces you to go beyond. Um, the court option to, in order to argue against legalism. So as a result, basically the case studies then give a really detailed empirical account um, of not only the kind of trial options that were considered, but also all of the other traditional justice options that you lay out that were considered, that were implemented, but also very interestingly that were not considered at all. And you can see how that changes over time as well, which is, which is quite interesting. Um, and then which normative, pragmatic and policy considerations play into that and it's very structured in that regard as well. Um, so for example, as an example of the relevance of political considerations, um, so for the book for example outlines how the US was very conscious actually of the idea that the establishment of the ICTY might lead, um, might set a precedent to thinking about um, like the ICTY's mandate as within the, uh, well like set up within the uh, context of the UN Security Council and how that would, through the veto power, um, actually limit, um, would, would provide the US with the opportunity to limit the mandate of the um, ICTY. And also, and interestingly here, even thinking beyond that, thinking about, well, if, about the potential setting up of a uh, permanent international criminal tribunal mm -hmm. and how that might put the way in into also having the veto power there. So it, it's very interesting um, examples there. 
But also, in terms of the empirical contribution, as I mentioned at the beginning, I think it's one of the main strengths of the book that it goes beyond this kind of standard account of traditional justice mechanisms. So it does not only focus on trials, um, but discusses also all other options that were actually considered and implemented. And I think it is really there where the book opens up some of the like, more controversial and at times really deeply troubling um, decisions that were made. And, and you op mentioned Operation Paperclip mm -hmm. and also the uh, human experimentation. I think that's, that's one of the very clear examples mm -hmm. in that regard. Um, but also you actually go back and, and incorporate that into your theory, mm -hmm. into your typology that you lay out in um, chapter two mm -hmm. in terms of kind of giving an overview of uh, transition justice options and here um, going beyond the standard account of uh, MSDs and you know, truth commissions and uh, typical, but also including military targeting as assassinations and uh, military targeting and, on the other hand, uh, indefinite detention. And um, while you said yourself that actually this is um, one of the aspects of the book that irked some in the field, and I have to say, well, I think that resonated to me with, to some extent, um, and I think that might be something that we can also discuss later. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it, it is, in the end, as far as I read the book, for me, it was very much grounded in an empirical analysis, really, like thinking about which of the different options were actually discussed, mm -hmm. in fact, um, as policy options, and then thinking about them as, as term, as in kind of as part of the toolkit that was um, implemented or not. Um, and I think that that move actually to include that and to include it into the focus is, is quite interesting for two reasons. Because on the one hand, I think it's um, for an historical analysis, I think it's very valuable because I think if you're if you're considering, if you're doing historical research, I think there's a bit of a tendency to look back and kind of exclude the options that weren't actually implemented. So this is um, it's, it's very interesting because it does focus on, for example, the idea of um, using the force and extrajudicial killings, particularly considered um, uh, with regard to Nazi Germany. And as I said, that that actually had some sympathy in the US uh, for a certain quite a quite some time. I think another um, set of question, however, concern how this, like the broader implications of that move of including it in the contemporary context. So, and as you point out in the, in the book, and I will quote you here, um, since September 11, 2001, the US government has favored four general transitional justice options. Inaction, indefinite detention, primarily in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, lethal force, especially through drone strikes and prosecutions through military commissions and civilian courts, as methods of responding to suspected atrocity perpetrators. And then you actually make it very clear that how controversial these options are, and you discuss it quite in depth. Um, and I think there are actually three important points here. Uh, one concerns basically the, the shift in portraying policies such as indefinite detention as transition justice options, as options of methods of responding to suspected atrocity perpetrators, right? And maybe also the, the emergence of a discourse that actually sees these options as, unquote, uh, justice being done. Mm -hmm. And the questions then here um, could then concern how we think actually about the politics behind that shift. And we think about both in theoretical and normative terms. And maybe think about processes of legitimization and of legitimization that are, and justification that are basically tied up with that. Mm -hmm. Um, the second point I think that's interesting is that it links to the questions of how transition justice norms 
actually change and might be contested mm. in their content, um, and how they're actually used alongside military power. And so I think in this respect, the book really makes it very clear that um, the role of the US in traditional justice has been far from consistent, but it really fluctuated over time. And in um, alongside military concerns, security cons uh, considerations, technological considerations. And I think finally there are some interesting questions here on how many might overlap, if I might be so broad. But actually, um, I, th I thought especially the, the use of lethal force, and if you then turn to the option of assassinations, um, it's actually included as a transition justice option, um, even though it is actually under, uh, illegal under international law. So I think there are some interesting questions here on how particular policy options can be both portrayed as traditional justice options and as achieving justice, or like at least in the discourse portrayed as such, and at the same time be legal. So as a result, I highly recommend that you all should read the book. Um, and I think there are some very interesting empirical results here, but also normative and theoretical questions that the book raises that I think are very interesting. Thank you so much. You're Thank welcome. you. Thank you, Nora.